verse 21. I have to uh, get turned over here, so I have uh, had a great desire to be here tonight. I'm excited about this, and um, I don't know why I'm excited, but I just always like, always wanted to preach on uh, these two kings. I knew there was something here, and, uh, um, and wow, Ritz, and I won't be able to share it all with you tonight. I just won't be possible to do so. There's too much that is going on with these two kings. Um, I'm believing more and more in this um, teaching that the Old Testament, um, like Paul says, have been left for us as examples. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grasping the, the longer I'm we're teaching and going through the life of Moses. Uh, we've been doing that now for oh, going on for maybe two years now. Uh, we've been preaching through the life of Moses almost. Uh, of course, we don't do that every Sunday night, uh, and we skip some times. But it's been a process to get through his life, and we still got a long ways to go. We're in Numbers. We've got Deuteronomy uh, left to go, so uh, so I don't know how long we'll stay here, but um, it's been an interesting life that uh, he has, and I believe in it, it shows to us so many practical aspects about the Christian living, about the Christian life. And tonight is no different in the message that we're going to see tonight about these two kings, Sion and Og. Sion and Og. And what these two kings represent to us as believers tonight. And I'll tell you tonight that when your enemy stands in your way from following God, follow God. When your enemy stands in your way to stop you, to keep you, to make you quit following God, obey God, His Word and His Spirit, and keep following God. That's the lesson that is very apparent in our message here tonight. It's very clear for us all to see that these two men, these two kings and their countries were standing in the way of God's children from entering into the promised land. You've got your Bibles open there to Numbers 21 and we want to begin reading with verse number 21. And Israel sent messengers unto Sion king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn in thy fields, nor unto thy vineyards. We will not drink of the waters of the well. But we will go along by the king's highway until we be past thy borders. And Sion would not suffer Israel to pass through, the, through his border, but, gathered, but Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness. And he came to Jehaz, and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all of these cities, and Israel dwelt in the, all of these cities of the land of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all the villages thereof. And Heshbon was about with the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab. And taken all of his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon. 
Wherefore they speak in Proverbs, saying, Come into Heshbon, let the city of Sion be built and prepared. For there is a fire going out of Heshbon, and a flame from the city of Sion hath consumed Ar and Moab, and the lords of the high places of Arnon. Woe to thee, Moab! Thou art undone, O people of Chemosh, or yes, I believe Chemosh. He hath given his sons that escaped and his daughters unto the captivity unto Sion, king of the Amorites. We have shot at them, Heshbon has perished, even unto Dibon, and we have laid them waste, even unto Nophon, Nophon which wreathes unto Medeba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazir, Jazir, I should say, and they took the villages thereof and drove out the Amorites that were there. And they turned and went up by the way of Bashan and Og, and the king of Bashan went out against them, and he and all the people of battle to Idriel, Idriel, and the fear of the Lord, and the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand, and all his people, and his land. Thou shalt do to him as thou hast done unto Sion, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So they smote him, and his sons, and all his people, until there was none left him alive, and they possessed his land. This land that uh, they possessed would soon become the land of two and a half tribes of the children of Israel. The tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh would soon occupy these lands of Og and the king of, ba- the king of Bashan and also Shesion's uh, land of the Amorites. But before we get there, we find that these two kings... They were not provoked by Israel. They did not were not antagonized by Israel. They were not maligned by Israel. Israel just wants to pass by so that they can get to promised land. But they say no and attack them. These two kings represent and have always represented the world who hates God and His people and will do unnecessary actions in order to stop them. They represent the devil and anything else that tries to stop God's people from entering into promised land and to having victory. These were cruel people who committed reprehensible and very ungodly acts. Read Leviticus 18 if you don't want to know what they did. Just take some time and read for yourselves Leviticus 18. And you'll find all of the atrocities of the land and the kings and the people of the Amorites. If you ever wonder why God eliminates these people from off the face of the earth, then again I say read Leviticus 18. And you'll see why the great atrocities, the great wickedness that these people did Things that, if we were even to mention them in our day to day, even probably, probably maybe, maybe even the grossest of sinner would say, "That's horrible. That's ungodly. That's wicked." But I would assure you that we're probably not very far from the Amorites in our own country in our own world. We still live in a very wicked, wicked world, and it's getting more wicked as the days go by. These people were actually famous for their idolatries. 
If you read in your uh, Kings and your Chronicles, you'll find that oftentimes that whenever a king set up many gods and idols in his kingdom, he is compared unto the kings and the people of the Amorites. Why is that? Because they were famous for this. This is what they lived to do, to worship idols. But mainly, as I said, these two kings represent everything that is standing in our way to having victory tonight. And what's clear is that these two kings are not just mentioned in this one passage right here. That's, that's, what, that's what has always intrigued me about Sion and Og. Is that as you read God's Word and as you go over... If you read... How many... I don't know. Maybe I don't put you on the spot. But if you're reading God's Word through this year, you're going to run into Sion and Og a few times. In fact, you're going to run into Sion 37 times in your Bibles. And you're going to run into the King of Og. You're going to run into him 22 different times. All the way up to you get to the book of Psalms, you'll find these two kings being mentioned. So clearly, these two kings have a great significance to God and to His people because of the, just the sheer amount of volume that is mentioned of them. God sets these two kings, I believe, in front of Israel. This won't be the message tonight, but I hope to preach this next time. That I believe that's God that sets these two kings up there to test the children of Israel. To see whether or not they are going to buckle under pressure. And God never tempts us to sin. Amen? Amen. Never one time. James makes that clear. God does not tempt any man. But God does test us. God does test us. And this is a test for them to see what they would do. But it's clear that God promises us victory. Amen? Aren't you glad for victory? Take your Bibles over to Romans chapter number 8. And let me just go ahead and give you the end of the story. This will be probably our third message that we'll look at about victory. But I don't want to get there too close to it tonight. But I do want to just show you off at the beginning here. As we begin to run this little race. Little mini-series. is Romans 8 in verse number 35. Look what it says here. Who shall separate us from the love of God Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And all God's people said what to that? Amen. Amen. We are more than conquerors through Christ. That loved us, for I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor any nor, nor death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors, Christians. Christians, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. Is what they're literally the, is, is what it's literally translated as super conquerors. Alright, we're not super men, alright, or super women, alright? I want to get too marvel here this, this evening. But we are super conquerors through Christ Jesus the Lord. 
through him. And these children of Israel were no doubt the same. Through God's power, they were super conquerors. They were fighting enemies that were much greater and much stronger and much mobilized than they were. Can you imagine a well-fortified, organized, mobilized army fighting a bunch of refugees? That's what you got right here. You've got a band of refugees and a mobilized army. Trained army. Did you read what I, did you hear what I already read to you? They had, the Amorites had already taken out Moab. They had already stolen their lands. So they were professional fighters. But God is greater than even the most professional fighter. And he makes us super conquerors. What is standing in the way of victory, though? It's these two kings. Before Israel can come into the promised land, and that's where we're going to. Chapter number 22 is going to kind of lead us away from that for just a few moments. It's going to take us into a different route. We're going to learn about Balaam and Balak and all those uh, curses and all those kinds of things that are happening there. But it's then right after that, where are we going to? We're going to promised land. That's where it's all heading to. And these two kings are at the gateway of it. This is the blessing, promised land is, that was promised to Abraham nearly 500 years before this event happens. So this has been a long time coming. God had promised Abraham and his seed, the land of Canaan, and now the children of Israel are literally so close to it, they can see it. And it's right on the cusp. All they need to do is pass through. But it won't be that easy. And listen, victory in the Christian life is never that easy. It's not easy. Not something that happens overnight. Victory in our lives doesn't come easy. Why? Because there are three formidable foes that stand in our way. You know them very well. They're known as the world, the flesh, and our most formidable foe, who is what? The devil. Satan. Standing in our way. These are our enemies. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12 tells us about our first enemy, the devil. The Bible says this, For we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who we're fighting against. The devil is up against us. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Alright? Our, our beef is not with Congress tonight. Okay? Or the President. Or the Senate. Our beef is not with our co-workers or our family members or anybody else. Our, our, our fight is against the, our most formidable foe and that is the devil. And all of his cohorts that go with him. That's who we're fighting against. I heard one preacher say one time, I doubt many of us or any of us have ever probably faced the devil himself. I would probably uh, agree with that. I don't consider myself that high level. You understand what I'm saying? 
This is a level of command. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12, you have levels of command. You have principalities. You have powers. You have rulers of darkness. You have spiritual wickedness. Listen to it. In where? High places. High places. Okay? So there is a spiritual wickedness that exists in our world that is leveled, it's degreed. And you're getting you're getting you're getting attacked from some of it. I don't know what level you are. But somehow, some way, the devil's sending somebody at you, attacking us. The world. Take your Bibles over to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15. Mercy, give me some more. John 15. Look at verse number 18. Jesus says to, to his disciples these words. He says, if the world hate you, he's not saying like they might or might not. That's not what he's saying. He's making a statement of, of surety here, making a declaration. If the world hate you, which it will, okay? You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore, and so we've got it real clear, the world hateth you. Alright, so that's that's nailed down. I'm just nailing down the enemies just so that you don't think that I'm pulling them out of rabbit out of a hat, okay? Alright? The devil is our enemy. The world is our enemy. But first Peter chapter four, verses number two and three tells us that we have another enemy. And that is the flesh. For he says that we should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So this is an enemy that we face, the flesh. And if we're not careful, then it may draw us back to these wicked things that we need to stay away from. That one time we once had a proclivity to, but now we need to say we don't want that in our lives anymore. Our flesh wants to draw back to that. The flesh and the spirit, they are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. So there's the enemy of the flesh, there's the enemy of the world, there's the enemy of the devil. These are our enemies. Secondly, Go back to your, I uh, hope you held your place in Numbers chapter number 22, because I want you to see this in verse number 23 and also in verse number 33. The world, the flesh, and the devil gather together in force against us. So if it wasn't enough that the devil's out to get us, and the world hates us, and the flesh also is contrary to all the spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within inside, if that weren't enough, they're all three working together against us. Great. Encouraging message tonight. Amen. You know, just trying to tell you the truth. Amen. Got to get it. 
23. Look what he says. He says, And Sion would not suffer Israel to pass through his border, but Sion, listen to it, gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. Look at verse 33. And they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, and he and all his people to battle, to the battle. So it's not just the king. It's not just the king and his, and his, and his, and his entourage. No, he says, I've got the king. I'm gathering all the people together to go out against them, to fight them, to eliminate them. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are in the same way. They're in the same boat. They're, they are in unity in this venture to eliminate and destroy us. They're out to take us down. The world does it a couple of different ways. First John tells us very plainly how he does that. All right? I won't have you turn to all these passages and a lot of passages that I have here. But First John chapter 2 tells us in general that the world does it by three different ways. Does anybody know one of those ways? The lust of the flesh. Yes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Those are the three things that the world tries to present to you in order to draw you away from God. Alright? It tries to get you with your eyes. Alright? Amen? I mean, look at I mean, just drive down Interstate 35. What do you got lying down this interstate? What do you got? Anybody know what are those things? Big billboards, right? What advertisement, alright? The world's trying to draw you away with your with your eyes. It's trying to make you look. And not all of them are, some of them are funny, and some of them are just, uh, you know, letting you know that McDonald's is up on the right, you know what I mean, trying to feed your gluttony, I mean, uh, and some of them are just about Motel 6, but some of them are wicked, you know, right. no doubt about it, right. okay, so some of them, but it's all there, it's, it's all there to grab your attention with your eyes, alright, that's what the world wants to do, it wants to use your eyes to draw you away from serving God, it wants to use your flesh, it wants to use your flesh to draw you away. It wants to know that the world knows that there that that this world, that the people of this world have a certain like and dislike for certain things. Right? They're going to appeal to your sweet tooth. They're going to appeal to your depression or your anxiety. They're going to appeal to your uh, to your to your love for uh, some ungodly thing. Uh, they're going to appeal to something to draw your flesh in that thing and say, I want that. Let me buy that. Let me get that. Let me consume that. Alright? And then it all it gets you on that one, doesn't it? The pride of life. Right? I mean, the world will get you on your pride. I'm amazed sometimes about how these car commercials will try to just work on people's pride. They'll make people try to believe that if you get this car, I mean, you'll be better than your neighbor. You know? You'll be better than them. What is all that doing? What's that doing? That's working on your pride is what it is. And the world knows that. The world understands that. That the world might try to give you a, a, a lucrative job opportunity, and they might try to do that by working on your pride, by building you up. That's what the world does in general, okay? But in specific, the world sets up roadblocks 
for the gospel and fights against even the church and the gospel. 2 Timothy 4.15 says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom thou be also aware. Beware of this man, for he hath greatly withstood our words. So the world, it, it, it goes after us with our flesh, our world, our eyes, our pride, but then it attacks and goes after the gospel and the church. Some do it actively, like Alexander the coppersmith was doing. All right? Others do it passively by claiming to be a Christian but living like the world. For the Bible says in Philippians 3.18, it says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now I'll even tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, not because they're out attacking the gospel. But look at what it says. Whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. So, listen... You don't have to be attacked by the world just actively. You might be in, you might could be used as a part of the world passively and be damaging the cause of Christ through your own testimony. So this is important for us to understand because here in our passage here, before these people can get to victory, can get to promised land, they're going to have to face these formidable foes. And victory in our life will come the same way. Either way, the world will not let you pass by. It will not be easy. They might even question us and interrogate us. Like Alex was just saying, I didn't even plan that out. But I mean, what a great testimony. What a good, good illustration for the message. Amen? For us all to see it here, right here tonight. You know, how she said to him, uh, well, there's many ways to God. What's happening? Interrogation. Interrogation. It's funny that the, most of the time that the world does not do this with other religions. Right. You ever notice that? But they always question Christ and Christianity. The devil is another one of our enemies. He sends the temptation to us. He tempts us in all kinds of ways. We know that he's a roaring lion seeking about whom he may devour I don't have to take you through all of that, but we understand that in Matthew chapter number 4 that he tempted Christ, right? And if he tempted Christ, is he going to tempt us? Of course. He tempted Peter and succeeded because Peter doubted in that day. But praise God, Jesus had prayed for him. He tempts husbands to neglect their wives and their families in order to enjoy other things in life. He, attempt, he tempts wives to rebel against their husbands. He tempts children to be disobedient to mom and dad. He tempts us when we're sick and tired and weak and distressed to give up and to quit. He tempts us to lie and to steal and to be angry without a cause or to curse or to get drunk. That's just a small list. That's a short list. He tempts us in all sorts of ways. And then there's the flesh. The stinking flesh that we have to live with every single day, right? The flesh, the flesh is that unregenerated part of our bodies that we still live with after we get saved. And when you get saved, praise God, you're born again by the blood of God, by the blood of the Lamb. You're saved. 
But you know what? You still got that flesh, and this flesh that we live in is unregenerated. All right? It's going to get regenerated, but it's not happening right now. You say, when's it going to get regenerated? Whenever Christ comes again. And the last trump is sound. The dead in Christ arise first. And we get to come in behind them if we're still here. Rise with him in the air. This corruptible shall put on what? Incorruptible. Incorruption, I should say. This corruption. Incorruptible. Uh, this mortal shall put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. But until then, we're still having to live with the flesh. That verse I quoted to you earlier still holds for us. For the lust, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Take your Bibles over to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Victory for the Christian is sure, it's guaranteed, it's something that God wants to give, but we need to understand who our enemy is. And that we've got a battle to face. And one of our most difficult battles is against our flesh. This is amazing to me. In Psalm 119, in verse number five, a, a better study of this, there needs to be a better study of this, of the of the uh, of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, according to Psalm 119. But let me just give you a couple of verses to kind of get you started. Look at verse number five with this, what the writer says. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. What does that sound like? That sounds like a man that's struggling with his flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Look at verse number 20. Notice what it says. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. He says, my soul's broken. I want to do God's word, but it seems like it's impossible sometimes. It's hard. It's difficult. My flesh gets in the way. Look at verse number 24 and 25. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Thou quicken thou be according to thy word. Do you see the, the contrariness there? It's very, it's very, it's very obvious. He's, he's talking about my delight. These are the wonderful things. And now he's cleaving unto the dust. Look at verse number 32. Notice what it says there. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge thy heart. I want to run to you, God. I want to run that way. His spirit is saying that. But verse 35. Make me to go in the way of thy commandments. He says, I will run in that way. I want to run that. I want to do it. But then he says, I really need your help to do it. <laughs> you know? Isn't that the way it is to serve God? <laughs> Serving God is not easy, my friend. It's not something that comes naturally. Look at verse number 40. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me according to thy righteousness. Look at verse number 133. We'll skip ahead for some of these five, for, for time's sake. He says, Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. And then go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse number 176. And if you didn't think that there was a struggle going on, then look at verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. For I do not forget thy commandments. Folks, we've got a battle. 
And it's not a battle that just began with us or it just began whenever Peter uh, preached and the Holy Spirit was sent down at Pentecost. It wasn't something that was just happening in the Gospels or in the prophets or anything. My friend, this has been a battle that's been existing within saved people for since the beginnings of time. Since people were Christians, since people, I shouldn't say Christian, maybe, since people were believers in God, there was a struggle. But I'm letting you know tonight that there's victory in Christ. We're our overcomers. We are super conquerors through Him that loved us. Isaiah found that out. Isaiah, whenever he sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 5, his response at first is this. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean lips, a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So his first response is one of, I'm not worthy to see this. I am wicked. I am ungodly. You know what I've done? My lips are wicked. I have spoken evil things. But then... He has a heart change. Something happens in him. And he sees something great here. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And realizes that he's got a calling upon his life. And verse number 8 says this. Three verses later. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said what? Here am I. Here am I. Send me. I tell you. That encourages me my friend. To let me know that the great prophet of God, Isaiah, the man that condemned Hezekiah, the greatest king, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel. I mean, he just put him, he put him down. He said, No, man, you're not going to be doing this. He took, he came into Hezekiah one time and said, You're going to die. You got 15 days. Get your house in order. That takes a bold man. But here he is, and he's preaching the word, and he's going to town in verses chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then he sees the Lord high and lifted up. His hero is dead, Uzziah the king, the golden king, has died, and he's got nothing left but God. He realizes that his flesh has been weak, and he sinned with his lips. He confesses it before God, and then... He yields himself to the Lord. And from there on out, my friend, he is a faithful man. The remedy, the remedy, I believe, for obeying the Spirit of God and not proceeding with the flesh, though is found in James chapter 4, verses number 5 and 6. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit dwelleth in the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? but He giveth more grace. If it weren't for the grace of God, we'd have no victory, folks. None. That's right. None. Because right. I've failed too many times. But by the grace of God, you don't have to fail, and I don't have to fail. But the remedy, the true remedy is this. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He shall lift you up. Verse 10. They gather against us. They fight against us. I don't want to get into that. There's not much to say, but they do. 
I've kind of already pointed to all of that. But the point being tonight is that these two kings were standing in the way of victory of the children of Israel. God was setting them up for as a test, as a test to see if they would obey God and follow God. And the world is standing in our way tonight, both passively and actively. The flesh is fighting against us. It's contrary to us. And certainly the devil is against us in every single way. It's only left for the Christian to do is to obey the Spirit of God and the Word of God and remain humble. Numbers 21, verse 34 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand. Listen, folks. The world, the flesh, and the devil have been delivered into our hand. Not by our own might or our own power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I have no no ability to fight the devil. Certainly I have no ability to fight the world because I can't even fight my own flesh. But I am holding to the promise and I'm staking my life on that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. You are a super conqueror tonight. You want victory in your life? Recognize the enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. See what they are. They're working against us. They're contrary to us. When you're tempted to stop following God because the enemy won't let you into promised land, then you just keep following God. Keep following God. Listen to the Word of God. And obey God. Fear Him not. For I have delivered into thy hand. Father, we're thankful for the promises of God's Word. We would pray that, Father, we would follow that we would look to them and be encouraged. And that we not only be encouraged, but Lord, we would take strength and follow, follow along for the glory of God and by the grace of God and through the name of Jesus.